Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, Michigan, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and occasionally further afield. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... A story of prisoners and propaganda. Join me in conversation with University of Washington in Seattle academic and host of the long-running Korea Studies blog Gusts of Popular Feeling, Matt Van Volkenberg, as he discusses the experience of allied POWs in Japanese colonial Seoul. I want to talk to you about uh, some of the things you've been focusing on over the last few years. And one of them was a really interesting topic, which I don't know much about, the case of allied POWs in Korea during World War II. So this was during the Japanese colonial period. Exactly. Um, and from what you've read or what you've researched, how many POWs were on the peninsula? I think it was about a thousand or so that were actually staying here. Mm. Um, essentially, after um, the fall of Singapore, uh, if you, you, know, you have to remember Singapore, it was something like 30,000 Japanese troops defeated 70,000 Allied troops because they, the Japanese were just so fast, they thought there were more Japanese. They didn't realize that they probably could have won, but it was just a brilliant psychological... This is primarily British troops, uh, some it, Americans... You know, Singapore was uh, British, uh, a lot of Indian troops, and Australian troops. Okay. And um, so from, I mean, you also had, Hong Kong had, uh, I think, some British, mostly uh, Indian and Canadian troops. And, and so the, the focus was on Singapore because there was just 70,000 troops. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of prisoners. And so, you know, the very unlucky ones were sent to, like, Thailand and Burma to build the Burmese Railway, where uh, the, they were treated horribly, and it was just an incredibly high death rate. Um, the lucky ones were sent... Uh, I don't know so much about Manchuria. Uh, a lot of them would have actually gone, I think, to Busan, taken the train, and gone to Manchuria. Mm. So I don't know how many uh, in total passed through. But the rail at that time went all the way <clears throat> up uh, into northern China. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I mean, well, yeah, you could basically go to Paris, right? You could go to, you know... Um, so basically... Uh, well, I guess, no, you wouldn't have gone through Russia at the time during the war, but uh, prior to World War II, yeah. Um, so, so people were, uh, maybe a thousand uh, were imprisoned on the peninsula at that time. Uh, where, where were they? Um, well, basically, um, I mean, one of the reasons they brought them here is they, the Japanese general in charge of Korea said... Uh, I think they would serve as very useful propaganda instruments to show the Korean people. Is that the Korean people are still they're too pro-Western, so we need to show them that like, we've defeated them. Look at this! Isn't this incredible? Like you need to get on board with this. You got to join our war machine. Right. And, and so they said, okay. Um, I think he asked for about two thousand prisoners. They so got a response back from Tokyo saying, no, we'll, get, we'll send up a thousand. But they were put on one of these hell ships, where they were confined a lot of the time to below. Uh, a lot of them had dysentery, um, and most of the people who died, uh, the POWs who died in Korea, died right after arriving because of the conditions on the ships. You're still talking, I forget the exact number, but it was, I think it might have been around 30 or so out of 1,000. So it's a very low death rate. Um, one of the reasons was that the Korean camps, especially the one in Seoul, 
were uh, Red Cross show camps. The Red Cross would come and they're like, look, we're treating them so well. Um, they still, I mean, they did not have an easy time, but compared to, say, Southeast Asia, there was, they are much better off. What else did you discover in your research about Allied prisoners uh, during World War II? Well, I mean, they were basically sent initially to Seoul and to Incheon, and like when they got here, they had to march through the streets, and uh, um, they were kind of paraded around, and I eventually realized the other people had managed to figure out where the Incheon camp was, and ironically, as you'll see in a moment, it was now what is the grounds of Shinguang, I think, elementary school in Incheon. Because that's the thing, I've noticed even with former military bases that have been closed, like American military bases closed in Seoul, like one in Yongdempo, that same block of land is still there, right? Like it's now a factory or something. It's, so a lot of the contours of that land still remains even to this day. So what happened was, we were trying to figure out, I was actually got, I was made to be interested in this by uh, uh, Jacko Zvetslut, uh, who I know through the, the RAS and so RAS is uh, the Royal Asiatic Society, and um, no, we, initially we were um, introduced by a mutual friend, and he was really interested in in this, and he had just gotten interested and was out, you know, he's like, oh, sent me some links, and isn't this interesting? And I was like, yeah. And the thing is, it's not, it wasn't undocumented at all, uh, because it was a show camp. Uh, they actually would take photos and sell them to the prisoners. And two different prisoners actually did sketchbooks, uh, very detailed, lengthy sketchbooks of their stay. So you can actually learn quite a bit. And there's also several accounts, one of which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. And um, uh, in Seoul, we were trying to figure out, where is it? So we, we looked around, and I eventually kind of went... I, I found an article from the Donga Ilbo, um, the, the Neighbor News Archive. Uh, it has, like, the Donga Ilbo back to 1920. And so I was looking through that. And I found an article from 1965 saying, 20 years after liberation, and this is what happened. And it just happened to mention this POW camp that was in, you know, this one, uh, a Changpadong. And I was like, oh, okay, now somewhere here. So hmm, maybe it's one of these schools. And actually, one of these sketchbooks, actually, it's someone, you know, the, the writer had actually drawn out the exact contours of the POW camp in Seoul. And so I was actually able to look at this one school and went, wait a minute, like that's exactly the same. It's changed at the bottom. And I'm like, that must be it. So I, I went there and I was like, oh, <laughs> they had just destroyed the building like two months before. Oh. But basically the, it was originally this factory and then it became a school like right after liberation. And uh, they built other buildings attached to it. So when they destroyed the building, there was basically like the bricks of the old building were still in the walls. So you could see where it had been. And um, and then I kind of, uh, well, Jacko did a, a lecture for the Royal Asiatic Society, and I put this on my blog, and I put a link to a, a video of it, of the lecture. And then I got a comment, and eventually an email from um, a woman from Australia whose father had been a POW. So she and her husband came to visit Seoul, and um, Jacko and I kind of showed her around and uh, took her to the, the former POW camp. and. And, uh, and in return, she gave us uh, something like uh, maybe 50 pages of his, um, basically his diary. That he, he wrote an autobiography later of his time as a POW. So it, basically the time that he was in Seoul. Because um, he also, other soldiers were sent to Hungnam, 
in North Korea, what is now North Korea. And that was also the, the um, location of the huge evacuation. Um, like in the, the movie Gukje Zhijang, Ut, my father, depicts that right at the beginning. It's the same place. So they had uh, uh, another camp there. And that actually got in, there's a whole other story of uh, the Americans were immediately after liberation, they found the locations of these POW camps and they were taking uh, B-29s and dropping supplies. Though actually in Seoul they dropped a crate, you know, with parachutes and I don't think the parachutes worked correctly and they like killed a Korean woman on the ground. And so, and actually, yeah, in the first ones that went to this one in Hungnam, the Russians were there and, and apparently like one of the crates almost hurt one of the Russian uh, officers. So it was like he ordered, next ones that come in are landing at the damn airport and not dropping these things anymore. And so um, basically the Americans, this, um, I can't remember the, the name of the, the ship plane now. Uh, I, I know an author who's writing a book on it, but it, they basically came in and the Russians sent up to uh, MiGs and they're kind of like, get down. And they're like, no, that it's not long enough. We can't land there. So they turned around and they were shot down. So they actually, most of the crew bailed out, jumped in, you know, into the ocean, were rescued by fishermen. And they actually did manage to land it at that airstrip anyways. And were brought in, and I guess the Russians based some of their future bombers on this bomber. But he was actually here for this, and so you you got to you got these little details from him, like how Koreans were really interested in uh, learning English. But he said some of it was very strange, and they would teach them things I wouldn't teach them. So like what? So he said, so you know, you might be walking down the street, and you'd hear like, hello. Uh, what was it like hello you bastard I love you I don't think so and uh, <laughs> oh this is like the slang of the 50s kind of I guess so but I found that interesting that even you know Koreans and he said a lot of even though Koreans have a very bad reputation especially in Southeast Asia as the prison guards working for the Japanese mm-hmm. um, he doesn't mention anything bad about uh, the, the Koreans here and, and describes them as being very poor um, apparently there was a riot at one point where the Koreans were trying to break into the camp to get the supplies because they were starving and, and they would be taken out on construction details and stuff and, and you know he said yeah we're just walking along and there's a dead Korean guy on the side of the road like and kids are just playing nearby and it just seemed that you know during the war there was a lot of privation and yeah That's The Korea File for this week. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, blogtalkradio.org, and the Fair Observer website. If you like what you hear, like us on Facebook and please leave a review of the show wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Hey, it's spring break. We're taking a month off. But tune in in April for more interviews with Korean studies scholars, including a discussion on the social power and corporate culture of Samsung, Hyundai, and the other chaebols of South Korea with anthropologist Michael Prentice, and digging up royal tombs in Gyeongju, a look into the work of Korean archaeological excavation with Rachel Lee. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.